editor-in-chief of the Journal of Parenteral and Enteral Nutrition and the Kraft Foods Human Nutrition Endowed Professor at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. I'm happy today to be joined by Dr. Justine Turner, who is Associate Professor of Pediatrics at the University of Alberta. Our topic is a paper that's being published in the January 2013 issue of the Journal of Parenteral and Enteral Nutrition. And the paper is titled Parenteral Omega-3 Fatty Acid Lipid Emulsions for Children with Intestinal Failure and Other Conditions, a Systematic Review. Welcome, Dr. Turner. Thanks, Kelly. I would like to start our conversation by asking you what your motivation for this work was. Why, why did you conduct this study? Well, I guess I had a couple of things that were a uh, driving force for me. Um, as many people who will be listening in know, there's been a lot of excitement in the intestinal failure area about the use now of omega-3 fatty acid lipid emulsions in reducing uh, cholestasis, and that's my prime area of uh, clinical work and research. So I go to a lot of meetings, and I hear a lot of people say, based on what's been published, there's not any either reasons to conduct more trials or perhaps not even ethical to conduct more trials. And I've always been concerned about that because my own impression is that the evidence at the moment, you know, had been, prior to conducting the systematic review, my concern was that the evidence was lacking and my second motivation was that based on that exciting experience in intestinal failure in my own institution, there'd been an increasing desire to get omega-3 fatty acids through a compassionate basis in Canada for use in other populations like liver failure patients for other reasons, critical care patients. And, and that was a big concern for me because the evidence, again, my impression was, was even more lacking in that area. So what I wanted to do was have a really uh, systematic review conducted by somebody who was totally independent of sort of clinicians working in the area so that we would just look at the evidence in a very, uh, uh, I guess, objective way rather than for many of us who are clinicians, we feel very passionate about this field. So it's very difficult sometimes for us to be objective. Uh, and that's where systematic reviews have been such a useful addition to the literature, of course. So tell us exactly how, how you and your colleagues conducted this review. What was your methodology? But so uh, actually what I did was I approached the Alberta Research Centre for Health Evidence. So it's basically a fully established research centre that the purpose of the research centre is to produce high quality uh, evidence reviews and along that line to do them both for institutions that request them but also to do it for uh, training purposes for the university as well. And so I approached that group and I explained the problem and my question and then really they conducted the systematic review um, sort of independently of um, myself if, if you like. So within that group they can completely conduct the systematic review. So uh, I know that the only sort of criteria that we had discussed and set were that I wanted them to look at both benefits and harms of omega-3 fatty acids and to look at specific benefits in terms of things like growth, liver disease, fatty acid status and you know important health outcomes like uh, time in intensive care. And then we restricted it, I asked them to restrict it to pediatrics and we talked about whether they would restrict it to the highest level of evidence, obviously RCTs, but 
because we knew that there would be very few RCTs, we agreed to include cohort studies. And I sort of gave them the criteria, but the methods were conducted through ARCH. And those were also retrospective cohort studies, right, given the limited evidence that's available? Well, I think in the end we had prospective uh, cohorts, but retrospective historical controls, and that that's probably you know one of the big limitations of the evidence that we have at the moment is that there hasn't really been a contemporary randomised control trial conducted in the field of looking at intestinal failure associated liver disease. There have been uh, RCTs conducted in preterm infants looking at the use of omega-3 fatty acids. So in the end, you were left with eight unique studies? That's correct, yes. Okay. Tell us about your results. What did you find? So I guess the, you can look at it sort of roughly what, what were those studies looking at, and there were sort of three themes that came out. There's one published study that's an RCT looking at the use of omega-3 fatty acids uh, in children with complex congenital heart disease undergoing surgery. So that was to look at perioperative administration and outcomes in that population. Uh, and then the other theme is intestinal failure-associated liver disease, and we had three uh, of the eight papers looking in that area. And then the remainder were really looking at preterm infants, looking at a variety of things, but for the most part you could say they were safety studies, but did have a look at sort of outcomes in terms of oxidative stress and fatty acid status, whether it be in uh, blood or in uh, red blood cell membranes. So those were the themes that were kind of looked at in the literature that the evidence was reasonably good for. Unfortunately, when you broke down the actual quality of the evidence for the outcomes that we were interested in, the evidence wasn't so good. So looking at, for example, things like growth, there was very uh, limited evidence presented, which is one of the concerns about the current literature. Um, looking at liver disease, there was some evidence, but low level of evidence because it's historical controls uh, in those cohort studies. And many of the other um, core clinical outcomes, there really wasn't really any supportive evidence to support improvement. But there were some things that are important, like the studies in preterm infants do show that you can improve fatty acid status from the point of view of DHA and EPA by using uh, fish oil emulsions in those populations. And that's important, although the clinical relevance of that hasn't been determined yet, but I think that's an important finding. You mentioned that uh, one of the impetus was the Canadian system and whether or not compassionate use of omega-3 fatty acid lipid emulsions would be possible there. Many of our readers will be familiar with the um, availability, the lack of availability of these emulsions in the United States. What is the current situation in Canada? So um, I guess my impetus, it's funny you say it that way, my impetus was a bit the other way. So in terms of uh, availability, we certainly do have availability of omega-3 fatty acids on compassionate basis for certain populations. And it's, it's a process that you have to go through to explain what is the available evidence, what is the reasoning for you wanting to use that product, and how sick is that individual child that would justify a compassionate treatment. So it's a reasonably rigorous system, but it certainly has enabled us to use omega-3 fatty acids, particularly for the intestinal failure population with uh, more severe liver disease, for example, than some of the published papers that are even in our uh, review have commenced those lipid therapies at. But one of the things that even in Canada I have to remind people is that although we're allowed compassionate use of a whole lot of different pharmacotherapeutic products, 
the compassionate program, the, the intent, and it states very clearly, is not to replace controlled clinical trials. And the preference is whenever possible patients are enrolled in trials. So what, what has happened because of the exciting outcomes in using those products and the publications that have come out and the great excitement that's engendered is that there has been less enthusiasm for conducting the trials, which is sort of the opposite of what the government intends through the information they provide in the compassionate use program. Like they're very clear. The first statement is that this is not to replace basically getting the evidence because ultimately that will mean that if you obtain the evidence and you clarify what population when, then you're actually going to open up a therapy for a whole lot of more children than it's currently available to. So uh, that was one of my really something that encouraged me was that we're very excited, we have compassionate use, but we mustn't forget that we have a responsibility to conduct the trials. That is just an excellent rationale, Justine. I think that that is something that we really do need to remember that the evidence has to be there before we, we move forward. Now, are you aware of randomized control trials that are being conducted in this area with... Yeah. Yeah, I am actually. So we, uh, in the last couple of years, uh, there has been a trial conducted in Canada that my centre was one of the centres involved in and the PI in that trial, Paul Wales, is one of my research collaborators uh, on basic science work that we do here in Edmonton. And I mean, it took a long time to conduct that trial, but it was very rigorously conducted and hopefully it'll come out in publication early in the new year. He looked at SMOF lipid, which is a combination of soy, medium-chain triglycerides, olive oil, and fish oil. And he did look at intestinal failure population in children under two years of age. And those results will come out in the new year, and they were favorable towards the treatment intervention. And I think we're hoping that that evidence that's going to come out and actually has been discussed with Health Canada already will hopefully lead to some licensing of the product in the next year or two and, and hopefully once that publication is there, uh, the same evidence can be used for uh, licensing purposes for the FDA in the United States. There's definitely, um, certainly my impression from a safety and efficacy study because many of the published studies in preterm infants did use this particular lipid emulsion. So there's good safety data. We think there's now going to be good therapeutic data and uh, I think that should uh, be something we can all go forward to advocate for licensing. That is very exciting, and the study that you're publishing in JPEN certainly paves the way for the need for those data. Where should we look for the data to be published in the new year? No, like I can't speak to that actually because I don't know uh, what his plans are with publishing. He's just working on the manuscript, I think. So I can't say, but I do know that uh, he certainly uh, had a lot of people reminding him we need to get it out published as soon as possible. So <laughs> I'll remind him to listen to this podcast. <laughs> very good. There will be some eager eager uh, attention paid to that paper. Now, so if I summarize, we have your data, which shows us that there's really limited evidence regarding growth in children uh, with omega-3 fatty acid emulsions at this point, and some emerging evidence regarding the therapeutic use with liver disease. But what you have been able to show us is that with regard to fatty acid status, this can be improved with fish oil, parenteral fish oil emulsions in preterm infants. And although that's not directly linked to an outcome based on what we know about metabolism and various, the function of various organs, of course, this is believed to be important. Yes, yes. Do you think that's fair? Uh, are there any other implications that I haven't summarized? 
No, I think I, I guess it's just that um, reminding that you know we do have to look at the long-term uh, safety outcomes as well. I think uh, the availability of many of these emulsions is actually going to probably change the nature of certainly intestinal failure associated liver disease in the intestinal failure population. We're going to end up with long-term chronically ill patients that are going to be survivors and uh, they may be home TPN dependent survivors but they're going to be survivors. So looking at some of these issues in regard to cognitive outcome is going to be very important. And perhaps the only other thing I would say is I'm always struck that some of the ways we've been using lipid emulsions do really, in my opinion, amount more to pharmacotherapy at the moment. So for example, if you look at Amigavan and the amount of uh, omega-3 fatty acids in it, it's much higher than sort of any naturally occurring infant food and that includes breast milk from babies whose mothers would eat predominantly fish. So we have to remember that, you know, that if we were looking at a drug therapy, we would expect a rigorous standard of testing. And so when we're using even a nutritional therapy in a pharmacological way, I think we should still expect the same rigorous amount of testing in terms of safety and evidence for its use. Absolutely. That's a great point. It's, ex it's exciting for all of us uh, who are nutrition experts, um, but certainly we need to have the data there to support the practice and provide pride the long-term outcomes. Just one more question. Essential fatty acid deficiency. Can you comment on that with, with omega-3 emulsions, parenteral yeah. omega-3 emulsions? Yeah. If you look at what's published, there isn't a lot published in terms of suggesting that there is a risk. Uh, most of what's published, though, has looked at, you know, just the ratio of a meat acid to arachidonic acid. And one of the things I would be a little bit cautious about in interpreting ratios is that if you're looking at very, very low levels of delivery of two nutrients and you look at the ratio, the ratio might come out in the normal expected range, but actually the delivery of both nutrients is below normal. And I think that's one of the things I would be cautious about interpreting the data for the use of Omegavan. And the other problem is when we think about essential fatty acid deficiency, the clinical outcomes are insidious to some degree and they may take a long time to emerge. So again, um, you know, that may mean that we are missing some outcomes that are not favorable for the children. So I think, again, it's just about, I think we have to be cautious and we have to be vigilant and we have to perhaps even look for other ways of measuring that as we move towards using these products long-term. Having said that, I know the trial that came out, they would have looked at fatty acid status, so hopefully that will come when it's published. It will be published in regards to Smoth Lipid, but Smoth Lipid uh, has a completely different composition and uh, the publications in the preterm infants who are at highest risk actually show favourable improvement in uh, stores of EPA and DHA without any deleterious effects on arachidonic acid. So, you know, I think we have to look at the way information is presented and look at the actual amounts of delivery of all of these nutrients as well as looking at things like ratios of one to the other, which may be misleading when they're delivered in very low amounts. Thank you. Uh, Dr. Turner, let me take this opportunity to thank you for your contribution to the literature in this important area and also for your insights today in this podcast. No, right, thank you very much for your interest. For more information or to view this article, please visit us at jpen.sagepub.com.